So it was about eight years ago. At the time, Catherine and I, my wife and I, we were living in uh, we were living in Illinois, in the northern suburbs of Chicago. We uh, had just accepted a call from a church in Wisconsin to uh, to come and to be a pastor there. I, uh, we were already then frantically trying to get our house in order, trying to get things taken care of, already kind of looking at the long list of things that we needed to do to the house to actually help it to sell, um, et cetera, et cetera. Things were a whirlwind. Um, honestly, I don't even remember totally what we were doing at this point, but we went on a trip. I think the trip might have been to, uh, to, to look for a house, but honestly, it might just have been a break. I can't remember at this point. I'm sure my wife will, um, will correct me after the morning services about what we were doing. But uh, we, we went on a trip, and we got back from this trip. We got back to our house in Illinois, and uh, we, we pulled into the driveway. We walked into the house, and we quickly realized things didn't seem quite right. Things were just a touch off. Things were just a little different. We had been gone for, I think, uh, I think only a weekend, um, but things had already moved and shifted a little bit. We began to walk around the house, kind of looking, trying to take stock, and, and gradually began to tell someone had been in our house. And then finally we got to the bathroom, to the downstairs bathroom, and we looked in the downstairs bathroom, and indeed, someone had broken into our house and changed our bathroom, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Our, our bathroom was completely redone. See, our bathroom had a backstory. Our bathroom was a, it, it was a fine bathroom, but we had moved into the house only a few years prior. And uh, when, once we moved in, my wife, Catherine, she had decided she didn't like the wallpaper in that bathroom. Well, she, she, she likes to jump into projects like that. And so she was like, I'm going to fix this wallpaper. So she began at that point in time trying to take the wallpaper down, only to decide fairly quickly that the whoever had put said wallpaper up had probably used super glue because it was not coming off the wall. So she quickly took to Google and then I think she experimented with every form of wallpaper removal on, the, on those walls. Consequently, at the end of all of her, um, at the end of all of her efforts, we were missing significant amounts of drywall in that bathroom, and that bathroom would remain that way for three years. Um, so, so people would come over to visit us, and they, they would go to use the restroom, and we would apologize to them on the way in. Oh, sorry, we're we're doing some remodeling on the bathroom right now. Not that we actually were making any progress. We had kind of at that point in time just accepted this is the reality of our bathroom. We'll probably never change. Once it came time to sell the house, though, it became apparent that we would actually have to do something about that bathroom. Something was going to have to change, and, um, and I didn't think we had the skills to fix it ourselves. So we were, um, we were preparing for the inevitable payment of someone else to fix our bathroom until, of course, we went on this trip. We went on this trip, we got back, and our bathroom had been completely redone. New uh, new fixtures, new cabinetry, new drywall, everything. And it was absolutely beautiful. In fact, if I remember correctly, the uh, the, the new paint um, color even in that bathroom matched my office paint. Because the hooligans who had broken into our house knew my favorite paint color. And so they made it all match. Um, and it was, it was absolutely beautiful. We, of course, later 
on found out which friends were responsible of this extravagant act of generosity. I'm still not totally sure how to interpret it, to be honest, because we were kind of dependent to actually like sell that house. We needed to get the bathroom fixed up so that we could move on to where God was taking us to this next step. And these friends stepped in and helped us to move our house more quickly. I, I, I try not to read too much into that. Right? Such an extravagant act of generosity. God was at work through our friends. God was at work through our friends in surprising ways to provide for his children so that we could move on to the next place where he was taking us. Today, we're going to look at a very similar event. This certainly isn't how God always works, right? There are many times where he works in what we would call the more ordinary ways of life. But there are many examples of where he works, not just, not just, in, not just in my life, I'm sure certainly in your lives, in surprising ways to provide for you. That you sit back later on, you reflect and you think, this is amazing. I can't believe God just did this. Again, we're going to look at a very similar passage like that today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 45, verses 16 through chapter 46, verse 34. Again, that's Genesis 45, verses 16, on all the way through chapter 46. As we continue to look at the unfolding of the story of Joseph. And we're going to look specifically at God's surprising provision for his people in the midst of this Joseph story. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for, I thank you for your provision, for your surprising provision. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be able to, uh, to share from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears so that we might hear the wondrous things of your law, of your word. Lord, that you would work powerfully in it to change our hearts, Father, and to draw us to yourself. Lord, give us a clearer vision of the beauty and the majesty of your son as we, as we delve into this passage today, Father, and just work powerfully. Please, please have your hands upon my words, Father. Lord, I pray that they would be yours and not my own. God, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So as we continue on with the story of Joseph this morning, we, we saw in the sermon last week that at this point in time, Joseph has finally come to reconciliation with his brothers, right? Joseph, in an incredible act of forgiveness and graciousness, he, he's finally revealed who his true identity is to his brothers, and he's embraced them, right? He's embraced them. He's jumped back into relationship with them quickly. Things that finally reached some resolution for the family of Jacob. And we went, when we enter into the scene this week, we're greeted by warmth and we're greeted by optimism. So much hardship had taken place. Joseph's life had, had just spiraled downward and downward. And not only Joseph's life, but the whole family of Jacob. Things had gone badly for them. But things are now beginning to look up. And Joseph wants his family to come and to live with him in Egypt and to enjoy the plenty that they had experienced there. Reading from uh, reading verses 16 through 28. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And the Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. 
take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave changes of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on his journey. Then he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out, they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Pharaoh has approved of Joseph's plans and is tremendously generous then to the family of Jacob, right? He, he offers them the fat of the land. I love that expression, the fat of the land. So it's like the best of the land and the best of the resources that came from the land. It's the fat of it. His um, he gave them the option to choose from whatever they wanted. And he has generously gives them ample provisions for their trip back to the land of Canaan. The brothers arrive in Canaan and they share the news with Jacob who, I mean, I I can't imagine to have actually seen that scene unfold, right? What would that have been like for, for Jacob to realize that his long lost son, who he had presumed to be dead for over 20 years at this point, his long lost son was actually alive. And not only was he alive, but he was also ruling Egypt, right? I mean, this would have been completely overwhelming. Jacob, an elderly man of 130, when he finally believes him, he hastily declares in verse 28, it is enough. Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And just like that, they're off, right? Just like that, they're already en route making a journey. But here's the, uh, here's the interesting thing. Here's the problem that's not really addressed specifically as they begin this journey. Jacob and his family were already in the promised land. They had already arrived to exactly where they were supposed to be. The land of Canaan was the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Have you ever stopped to consider that reality? that they were already in the land that God had told them to go to, the place where God was going to bless them. And just like that, they're off to the land of Egypt. Now, most of us know where this story is going to end up. Most of us know what's going to happen here in about 400 years. Jacob's family will be enslaved. They'll be treated cruelly, right? They're, they're going to be miserable and trapped in the land of Egypt. Not only that, but it's the Exodus. It's the Exodus when Genesis is actually recorded, meaning the original audience, the original people who are hearing this account are those who actually bore the scars on their backs of this event and of this decision, right? It's those people who are now hearing this account. 
In addition, just previously in Genesis, in Genesis 26, verse 2, God had actually prohibited Isaac from going to Egypt, telling him he shouldn't go there. And in general, there's this just general understanding that departure, departure from the promised land, going out from the promised land is linked to disobedience. It's either the result of their disobedience and therefore it's exile or it's caused by their disobedient hearts looking for provision somewhere else as opposed to trusting God. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with movies like, like Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? Or, or if you're familiar maybe with the animated feature, uh, Prince of Egypt, then you're re- you're hearing this account thinking, Jacob, don't go! You don't know what's gonna happen! You don't know how this is gonna turn out! Right? What exactly is happening here? What is God's plan? As we watch this unfold, most of us are probably, I mean, if you're, if you're stopping to think about this, you're probably thinking, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Most of us have seen friends or family in those situations before where we see them make a decision and they're going to go do X, Y, and Z. And we're sitting there thinking, ah, don't, don't do that. Like, that's crazy. You don't know how this is going to turn out. This is a bad idea. That's kind of the feeling we should be feeling at this point in time as we're reading this account. But God's not done with them, and God will not remain silent. They began their trip, and they arrived in the land of Beersheba. Um, Our narrative continues, chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. And and Jacob responded, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Beersheba is Jacob's boyhood home. He had spent there as a young, he had spent time there as a young child. It was located on the southernmost border of the land of Canaan. So it was kind of the last stop in, within the land on the way to the land of Egypt. And God, and God came to Jacob in the middle of the night. Jacob went, he sacrificed. It's probable that he actually sacrificed on the, on the altar that Isaac, his father, had actually made. He worshiped God, and then God came to him, and God spoke to him. Now, it's interesting because this is actually the first time in the story of, at least in the story of Joseph, not in the story of Genesis, but in the story of Joseph, where we actually see God speak directly to one of his people. And, uh, and as far as I know, this will actually be the last time that we'll see that in the book of Genesis. God draws near to Jacob and he calls out to him by name. Why does he do that? Because he's a relational God. He's a God of relationship because he knows Jacob by name because he likes to call him by name. And not only does he call him by name, but God makes himself known as the God of relationship. How does he describe himself? He, he's the God of Isaac. He's the God of Jacob's father. Oftentimes when he addresses the, the other patriarchs, he'll say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he wants to be known as the God of relationship, and he comes to Jacob in the midst of this. Now, 
I don't know exactly what motivates this. I, I, we don't know if Jacob is at this point in time kind of ruminating on this problem. Maybe it's he's heading out of the land of Canaan, the promised land. Maybe he's sitting there actually reflecting, what am I doing? Like, I, my, my boy, Joseph, he's in Egypt, and I, and I have to go see him. But at the same time, God has commanded Isaac, my father, to stay in this land. Like, God has promised us this land. So we don't know for sure. I tend to assume that's probably why God addresses this so quickly here. God tells Jacob not to be afraid and that indeed it is safe for him to go to Egypt. You see, this was all working according to God's surprising plan. Joseph had just declared previously, and uh, we, we looked at it in the sermon last week in chapter 45, verses 5 through 8. Joseph had declared, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you. It was God who did it. This is God's plan with a purpose to preserve life for the famine had been in the land for these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God, again, God sent me before you. Why? To preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. God has a plan. God, it's a surprising plan, but God has a plan that's unfolding before them. And it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God was using Joseph to preserve his people. In fact, in a few verses from now, in verses 5 to 7, Old Testament scholars like to point out that the language, the phraseology there, intentionally mirrors the account of the flood and of Noah boarding onto the ark. Genesis 6, verses 18 to 20. I will establish my covenant with you. This is, this is to Noah. I will establish my covenant to you and you shall come into the ark. That language there coming into the ark that occurs throughout this passage. That's the same language of coming into the land of Egypt and your wife and your sons and your wives with you and every, and every thing of all flesh. And you shall bring two of every, uh, of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the, of the birds, according to their kinds and of the animals, according to their kinds and of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you and to keep them alive. So the account of the generations also is reflective of the passage that we see here. And also the, uh, and also the animals and such are included as well. So they tend to see a mirror that's kind of happening in this passage. Just like the ark, God was going to use Egypt to preserve his people in the midst of this world covering famine. Egypt would be their ark of deliverance. So they should not be afraid to enter in. Even though this seems contrary, right? It seems contrary to what we would expect. God has a plan. And God likes to use the unexpected people and events of this world to accomplish his great purposes. We know that this will turn hard for Jacob's family eventually, but even that is part of God's plan to bless Jacob's family, to bless the nations of the world, and to bring glory to his name by allowing the world to see the the unfolding of the Exodus and God's redemption of his people. This was all part of God's surprising plan to prosper his people. 
God then provides Jacob with four promises. Four promises. These promises will mirror the promises seen throughout the book of, the, of Genesis. Again, in our story, in our short, um, our short survey of the life of Joseph, we haven't actually gotten to see these promises unfold, but they they happen repeatedly throughout the book of Genesis, leading up to this account. You see, God had determined to do mighty things to bless the whole earth. And he had a plan to reverse the curses that had come upon creation. He was going to bless all the earth. And he was going to do it through the family of Abraham. Through the family of Abraham. He was going to accomplish a great reversal of blessing. We catch our first glimpse of that in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, at the time his name was Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that, and here's the purpose, so that you will be a blessing. Right? He has plans to do significant, huge, amazing things for the family of Abraham so that with the purpose that they could be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This uh, complex of promises is part of what we typically refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. It is then repeated to Abraham a number of times through his life, um, sometimes with expansion to actually include more detail and to include more of what this means. So we see in passages like Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely, again, this is Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore. All right. So just trying to give Abraham a picture about how many offspring he was going to have and your offspring, your descendants shall possess the gate of his enemies. So that that's referring to the land, the amount of land that they were actually going to be in possession of all the gates of their enemies. Not only do these promises expand in scope, but they also extend throughout Abraham's generations. So that we see in Genesis 26, 3 to 4, in a passage for Isaac. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Are you guys seeing some repetition happening here? This is something God is really passionate about. And we know that God is really passionate about because he repeats it over and over and over again. Sometimes my kids ask me, dad, why do you keep repeating yourself? And I always give them two answers. A, because you don't listen to me. And B, because this is really important. I really want you to learn and to know this, right? Jacob has also received the promise previously in his life. This passage isn't the first time. Looking back at Genesis 28, 13 to 15. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in In you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. 
I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. Right? These are big, bold promises that God has given to this people. These are only a few examples of the development of this promise throughout Genesis. God's plan hasn't been deterred. In fact, all of the events of Genesis have gone absolutely according to God's sovereign plan. God is bringing about his purposes oftentimes through surprising figures and through surprising events in the book of Genesis. This passage then continues that long line of re-emphasizing the promises of Abraham to affirm this move to Egypt is in no way is in no way a hurdle to God accomplishing his purposes. God grants Jacob four promises here then, largely repeating what we've already seen. He grants him a people. He grants him a people. God will grant him a growing family. In fact, they won't just be a family, they're going to be an entire nation of people. And this is in keeping with the promise to Abraham who struggled to even have one child, right? So, so that when he finally did give birth, it was deemed miraculous because of his age and because of the inability to even have that child. Notice that the verse specifically states here, where is this going to happen? Where is he going to become a great nation? It's going to happen there. It's going to happen in Egypt. Alright, so this is surprising because they would have thought that this would happen in the promised land. That they would have their own plot of land and it is there that they would become a great nation. But God specifically states, no, 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 not there. It's going to be in Egypt that you're going to become a great nation. It's going to be in the context of a totally different nation that you're going to rise up and become your own nation. Number two, he promises a presence, presence. Not only would God make them a great nation, but even more importantly, he would be with them. He would be with them. If we were to receive all of the best things, if we were to receive everything we could possibly want, but it was without God, then we would be miserable. We would be absolutely miserable. There's a TV show, I think it's, I think it's um, done and completed at this point in time, called The Good Place. Um, humorous show, but the most interesting part is watching them struggle through questions of heaven and hell and spirituality and things like that. Tons of moral ethics, if, if that's of interest to you. They, they get to the final season and these characters arrive in heaven. And it's interesting because the show, I mean, discusses heaven and hell regularly and angels and demons and things like that. But there doesn't appear to be any God in the show. And it avoids the actual question of where is God? Who is God? What is he doing? It dodges those questions and it's more about enjoying heaven or hell and the demons that get in the way and such. Uh, so you get to their final season and the characters, the leading characters finally arrive in heaven. They arrive in the good place, right? And the interesting thing is, is in the good place, they could have anything they wanted. Anything they could possibly imagine. They could have it all. Imagination was their limits. And they could enjoy that for all of, for all of eternity. Just on and on and on. Right? And everyone in heaven was miserable. Everyone in heaven was absolutely miserable. Because they had all gotten bored. They had everything they wanted. And at that point in time, everyone who had been there for any amount of time had already done everything they wanted. And they were bored and miserable. And so they got to heaven and they realized there's a problem. This doesn't actually satisfy us. 
If you could have everything you wanted, but not have God's presence, you would be miserable. You would be absolutely miserable. The third promise was land. Though they could expect, they could expect to be there in Egypt for a long time, it wouldn't be forever. God's promises to return the nation of Israel to the land of Canaan, right? We still see that promise there. God is going to bring his people out. So already we see the Exodus in view, even in this passage. And this isn't the first time that Exodus is already in view. Going back to even Genesis 15 verses 13 to 14. We see, um, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and, and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out. Exodus, they will come out with great possessions. So already, even in this passage, the Exodus is in view, though it's 400 years down the road. The promise of the land is not is not taking a um, it's not taking the expected route it's not taking the route they were expecting but it is still promised it is still coming finally the fourth promise that the one that's probably closest to Jacob's heart is that there would be a reunion right there would be a reunion with his son Joseph they'll be re- reunited and uh, brought together e- and so they'll be together even at the point of Jacob's death now this sound might sound like a morbid scene that Joseph will be the one who actually closes Jacob's eyes but in the ancient world that was actually a, that was actually a good thing to have your loved one be the one who closed your eyes at death it's uh, symbolic of dying at peace they saw this as a good thing and it would come to pass though Jacob still had some life left in him. It was about 17 years out. The vision is over. Morning comes for our entourage. Without missing a beat, Jacob sets out with his family to Egypt, excited for their reunion, excited to see God fulfill his gracious promises. Continuing reading from verse, uh, verse 5 through verse 27. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his, and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with them into Egypt. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanach, Palu, Hezron, Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the sons of Judah, Aronan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Aronan had died in the land of Canaan, which we had previously read about. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram. Together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. 
The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom, whom um, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of uh, Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Echi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were in his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So... um, that uh the, that list of names i'm pretty sure is why um is why i'm preaching this week and had to uh had to read that passage i i i feel like i deserve a good clap after that um thankfully not too many of you will know how many of those names i pronounced incorrectly Already, why, why is this even here? Why is there a genealogy at this point, right? Uh, already at this point in time, we're seeing a fulfillment, right? Already at this point in time, we're beginning to see the first glimpses of fulfillment of the promises that God has made to Jacob. I, I don't know that too many of us have been to 70 plus persons, uh, family anniversary or family, uh, get togethers, right? Family reunions. I certainly have, and my family certainly is nowhere near this size. I don't know. Maybe there's a few of you, but this is a staggeringly large family. God has already begun to bless them and to fulfill the promises that he's made to Jacob, but he's not done yet, right? This genealogy is only a foretaste of what God's going to do, of what God's going to bring about. We, we get an even better taste of it later on in Genesis 47, 27, where it says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Right? Fruitful and multiplied greatly. That should ring bells. Not only, not only is that the commission that was given, given to Adam and Eve, but that was also part of the promise then that was given to Abraham and to his descendants. That you would be fruitful and multiply. Right? There's a fulfillment that's happening in these passages. Uh, verses 28 to 34. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. And he presented himself to him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until even now, both we and our fathers in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Here we see, finally, the reunion take place that we long for. But the interesting thing is, is it's really short, right? It's really short. Like you see this reunion and you expect it to be maybe a full chapter, but it's almost like, it's almost like, okay, and this happened and then moving on. And I think the passage moves along quickly because the passage would rather focus on this land of Goshen. 
this land of Goshen. Already there is, already there is a plot, there's a plan to try to acquire this land of Goshen that they recognize is going to be a great piece of land for them. It's a fertile piece of land. It's a land that would be per- perfect for shepherding. On the east side of the delta of the Nile, this would be the perfect land for the people of Israel. Right? And already a plan is unfolding to procure that. Again, we see God beginning to fill already, already the promises that he has made. Sure, it's not the promised land, but it's a good piece of land. God is continuing to provide for his people. And it was the perfect land for them at this, at that point in time. God was fulfilling his promises in partial ways that only strengthened their hearts for a future fuller fulfillment, right? It was coming. God had promises in store for his people. He would bless them abundantly so that they could be a funnel of blessing to the world. Jacob and his immediately and his immediate family witnessed that in part. Right? They witnessed it in part. They, the, the original of Genesis, the Israelites, in the midst of their exodus, were witnessing it more and more. But even then, there was a sense that once they arrived in the promised land, once the exodus had happened in the future, once they arrived in the promised land, it still doesn't quite seem complete. It still doesn't seem quite fully fulfilled. This feeling would carry on throughout the Old Testament. They had arrived... But they hadn't really fully arrived yet. The promises were fulfilled, but they weren't really fully fulfilled yet. And as the Old Testament continues, God continues to add to these promises, more promises that would eventually give birth in a surprising way. God had a surprising plan to provide for his people. And the Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians 1.20, He described it this way, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter and our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises find their yes in him. All of them. Not, not just some of the promises, not just a few of the promises. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This isn't uh, all of the promises that we see witness here pointed forward, not just to the Exodus, not just to that 400, uh, 400 uh, year event later when, uh, when they would come out of the land, but rather it pointed forward to the day of Christ, to the day of Jesus, their long awaited king, the surprising fulfillment of everything that God had in store, his summation of all things. Christ is the object and the content of these promises. He is the people, right? He is the promised seed, the descendant, the one who was promised to both Abraham and to Adam, even prior to him. He is the presence of God. That's what his name, Emmanuel, means. He is the very presence of God with us. He is the inheritance that they had been waiting for. He is both the source and the content of the eternal life that we look forward to. But he's also, he's also their land of Egypt, he is their ark. Just as, just as Egypt was an ark for Jacob's family, he's our ark. And that in him, we find deliverance. We take cover in him. And consequently, when we're in him, we are, cha- we are put into the channel of God's blessings. Right? 
He is the channel of God's blessings to us so that in him we find surprising provision through all of God's promises. We are the beneficiaries that this has been looking forward to this whole time. So not only is he the promised descendant, but he is also creating a mass of descendants that are greater than the stars in the sands, a great children of Abraham that will be innumerable so that we are the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ through his great work of taking those who were not a people and making them into the people of God. We will be a massive people that will worship together on the last day, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who will come together throughout every age to worship the glories of our God. That's the descendants that we've been looking forward to. And not only is he God's presence, but through his atoning work, he will usher us into God's presence so that we can enjoy peace with God now, but we can also look forward to an even greater presence of God when we will actually see him face to face, right? When we will stand with him on that last day. And not only is he, not only is he God's inheritance, but he also wins and ushers in an inheritance for us, fulfilling all of the land promises so that we can look forward to a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth when the meek will inherit the earth and when we will be with him and all things will be made new. He is the, he is the fulfillment of all the promises. All of it is found in Him, in His person, and His work. And so we can rejoice in Him. People, presence, inheritance are all fulfilled and being fulfilled in Christ. So we wait in hope. Brothers and sisters, we have glorious promises. We have glorious promises we're waiting on. Therefore, we don't fix our eyes on the immediate. We don't fix our eyes on viruses or face masks, right? We, we don't fix our eyes on liberties and persecutions. We don't fix our eyes on division and anger. We don't fix our eyes on worry and deceit. We don't fix our eyes on sickness and hardship. We look beyond the present moment to our Christ and to an eternal weight of glory with Him that far surpasses the light and momentary afflictions that we face now. Because, because those sufferings, because these sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. It far overwhelms this present moment for those discouraged, for those who are tired, for those who are weary, for those who are desperate. We have a hope that far outstrips this moment. Of course, God is always showing his loving hand through surprising us. Right through surprising ways that he meets our needs in things like bathroom remodels and then, of course, in even more glorious ways. Our ultimate hope is in the surprising provision that God gave us in his son. So we look not just to our present trials and hardships, but let's look forward to the day when all things will be made new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today. Lord, I pray that you would truly fix our eyes upon that future date. I pray that our hope, that our joy, that our that everything would be focused on that time when we will be with you and all things will be made new. Father, you are glorious. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Please rise for our benediction. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude, verses 24 to 25. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. If you would just please kind of stay where you're at, you'll be dismissed by Rose. Have a good week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.